Hello and welcome to this episode of the Noble Peace Prize. I'm Dan. I'm Ben. And uh, today we're honoured to be joined by Luke Jones, who's a fantastic pianist, um, currently studying at RNCM uh, in his sixth year. And uh, you're originally from Wrexham, is that right? I think, yeah. Yeah, Wrexham. So, uh, I have been living on and off in Manchester for a very long time now, so yeah, I do feel, yeah, like, yeah. A, sort of, I feel like a dual citizen. You're a naturalised citizen now, yeah. Yeah, I went, I went um, to Cheatham's for, Cheatham's for seven years, so I've been oh, in Manchester for a very long time. So our topic today is triumphant, but uh, Dan thought we'd kick it off with a bit of a game first, uh, which yeah. is a musical version of Articulate, so um, we're going to have to try and <laughs> guess the piece. Do you want to start, Dan? Or Yeah, I, c- I can present one to you guys. Cool. Um, you might get it straight away, but okay. The first word I'm going to give you is head is that supposed to <laughs> give us it already uh, i reckon the second word could give it to you art of fugue <laughs> <laughs> is it something to do with being decapitated or something like that maybe it might be it's an op oh is it an opera um and they get the she gets the head of her uh lover which she's chopped which has been chopped off hey you're on the right lines oh what is it we're aware that if you don't know the plot of this opera, <laughs> it might be a bit worrying that Ben's just talking about decapitated heads and everything. Yeah, there's <laughs> a larger context. Um, oh, man. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. Okay. And it's not the obvious link. Decapitated head, Stephen Fry. This is almost too niche for me. <laughs> is, it a, is, it a French, is it a French opera? It's not actually, no. no. Oh, man. German? Okay. Italian? Yeah. German. German, okay. German. Quite important. In it's German. In and German. both, okay. both. German okay. composer in German. Should well, I tell well. you something, Stephen Fry? Because I think oh, yeah, I'm allowed on, to man. do Of course I'm allowed to do that. I literally created this game. I can write the rules. Okay. <laughs> um, so Stephen Fry played Oscar Wilde when he was younger. Okay, now I'm starting to cycle through all the stories of by Oscar Wilde. Though, no? <laughs> There's the importance of being earnest. There's a picture of Dorian Gray. It's not... Where is it? Or is that a different one? Richard Strauss. Okay, so I'm guessing it's Richard Strauss. Yeah, it is Richard Strauss, yeah. I'm trying to... Okay, I know. I know what it is. You got it? it? Salome. Yeah, well done. Uh, Salome. Yeah. That rings a bell. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. Great, okay. Ben, you can go next. Yeah, all right, this is an easy one then. So um, this is probably describes... He says. ...like comedy (laughs) operas, but... So there's two couples and... Um, they and someone and they two of them go off and then come back and pretend to be somebody else they're testing what their partners actually uh, think about them Dan's that's a very Mozartian part <laughs> it is it is okay someone has a bet on with them that they would cheat on them Oh, I know this one. I literally know this. Yeah. Cosy he fronted the... Hey, it is. Yeah. Well done, yeah. Well done. Yeah. That one was a bit easier. <laughs> I, was kind of, I was just trying to like, dig into the recesses of my mind of uh, operas that I have kind of vaguely know from a distance. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't listen to opera that much, if I'm going to be honest. But, um, well, always... do you want to do one and it doesn't have to be an opera if you don't want All right, okay. Um, let's, uh, I'll just give you a couple of words. Yeah. Okay. Orthodox. Okay, uh, Rachmaninoff. Close. <laughs> That's quite a good guess. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Thank uh, you. 
Uh, Close, but no cigar. Oh, is it Russian? Yeah, well, it's, it kind of has to be Roman yeah. news. Is, is it, it Terrence Terrence music? No, nearly. Not quite Rachman enough, but... Is it written for the church, or is it... Um, is it in it? Yeah. It is, okay. Liturgical um, work. You're very much in the right ballpark. I mean, as soon as I say orthodox, I thought that'll narrow it down immediately. So. <laughs> yeah. I'll give, you one, I'll give you one clue, because you've already mentioned Rachmaninoff, and I've told you that Rachmaninoff did, in fact, write a piece that has a near-identical title to the composer and piece that I'm thinking of. The composer of the piece? No, no, the title, to the title of the work. Okay. But he wrote also another work which has a near-identical title. I think that, I guess it's one of those things that if you know it, then you know it. If you don't know it, you don't know it. All right, I'm, I'm going to go through. Um, so, all-night visual thing. That is the Vespa. That, that is the Vespa. That's, yeah. that's the correct, that's the correct, that's the correct uh, term. Correct title. It's funny how few people know this work, actually, because it's, uh, I think it's really good. It's worth listening to. Well, it's named after an important theologian in the Orthodox Church. Mm, All right, well, the composer in question is uh, arguably the most important to Russian music. Tchaikovsky. Arguably. Yeah, Tchaikovsky. Okay, got the composer. Do we Fetch dare? Something. Well, you got it. Yeah, you're basically nearly there. So. What did you say? Oh, I'm like... It, I, it's just on the tip of my tongue, but I, I can't remember the complete title. Is it something to do with St. John? It's St. John. So, 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 I'm not going to say it. Oh, is it, a, it, oh, is it something like <laughs> Liturgy of St. John something? Yeah, that's the one. The Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. All right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hold my hand up. Don't know. We kind of got there. We kind of yeah, joint <laughs> We just missed off probably the most like distinct word of the name, but well, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, the divine liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I highly recommend the Latvian radio choir for the uh, vocal works of of Rachmaninoff. Very, very good choir. Are the low B flats beefy enough in the basses? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The key yeah. Point, really, isn't it? yeah. The basso profundo is very much in uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in attendance. So. <laughs> yeah, Luke, do you want to fire away with your extracts then? So it's all piano music. Uh, I know it's very original of me. Uh, we haven't had enough, you know. Yeah, we haven't really had much solo okay. music at all. Really. Okay, here we go.
my my logic for for choosing this particular word. I mean, partly it's because I'm actually learning it at the moment, so yeah, very original on my part. Uh, but actually, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wider point about a lot of Bach's works. Um, I often find when you see a lot of these kind of perpet almost like a perpetuum mobile style, where it's kind of relentless and this kind of chromaticism and these kind of descending passages that feel like it's never ending almost. And I, I love those kind of the way Bach treats this kind of thing because it really kind of conveys a sense of tension without resolution. Um, that sense of driving forward and con continuously kind of moving the listener and the performer as well, actually, kind of continuously moving them to something without any, without really giving you a hint of what's to come at the end. Uh, and sometimes it feels quite exhausting to play. But then what I find really amazing is that it's always in the last four or five bars, or sometimes four to eight bars, that you suddenly get this like ray of light coming through, a glimpse of light that suddenly gives you an indication that something very, as I say, triumphant, which is the kind of word of the podcast, it kind of gives you this hint that finally it's all going to be okay and you're going to be able to finally reach that inexorable resolution. So that's my logic for picking this uh, work. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think fugues especially, it's just that, um, especially when you hear the subject coming through all over the place, it's like that insistent repetition automatically just kind of builds every time it comes back and then yeah kind of exactly and Bach always is so good at giving you a really satisfying kind of major resolution at the end you know <laughs> yeah I mean, what i find particularly interesting in this fugue as well is that it obviously has the the main subject which is but then he also introduces slight like sort of uh maybe i don't i can't remember 24 bars in or something like that he introduces the motif which uh, I don't really know how best to characterize. It's sort of a, just a descending chromatic motif. Yeah. I think he uses it in some other works. I, I seem to, in the back of my mind, I feel like it's a motif that's usually in the case in sort of like lamenting or something like that. It's yeah, and it kind of just increases that sense of dread, like increasing level of tension. That, as I say, it kind of makes that resolution, the tears to pick it at the end, all the more sweet and satisfying. It kind of really gives you, it's like that final breath, like breath out, the kind of release of breath. A well-earned breath, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So do you want me to play the next bit? Yeah. yeah. yeah Interested to see what it is.
mean, stylistically, it's kind of self-explanatory from a perspective of being triumphant. But I think there's, a, for me, there's a kind of deeper aspect to this in some sense that for me, when I listen to Stravinsky, especially these earlier works like Petrushka and uh, Firebird, The Rite of Spring, there's a kind of self-confidence and a kind of uh, lack of a need for external reference. It feels like it just stands on its own. The narrative of the music just speaks for itself and it doesn't really require much reference to anything else. And I've always been drawn to Stravinsky's music like that, actually. Is that a kind of, to me, it seems like you can engage with, let's say, the story, the and the kind of essential qualities of the music in its own right, without the need to even speculate on how it fits into a grander context. I know, obviously, Stravinsky is kind of, you know, hotly debated, you know, with Schoenberg, Theodore Adorno, and people like that, about, you know, where does it fit into the modernity and that sort of stuff. But I don't know, I think the themes, especially in Rite of Spring in particular, these kind of very earthy themes and kind of primordial quality and I think obviously the harmonics harmonic writing kind of indicates a, a measure of that something like Petrushka I think this kind of sheer self-confidence and self-belief in the kind of the the piece the work's own narrative is for me what kind of gives it that triumphal quality this is something like a totally different this is the same kind of romantic element but really rather different in content Well, it's actually, there's a kind of context to this. So, you know, Schumann is very much steeped in 
the German romanticism, you know, Goethe and Schiller and all those kind of, you know, poets and philosophers and, you know, kind of really steeped in that enlightenment values and that, that kind of thing. So I think there's a certain kind of profundity in the Kindersein and the fact that obviously it's supposed to be scenes from a childhood and obviously there's a an aspect, of, you know, almost like in William Blake as well, innocence and experience, you know, this kind of combination of uh, simplicity and sort of age and wisdom, that sort of thing. So, you know, is it, uh, what I find really interesting about the Dichter, what's it called, How do you, the, the poet speaks, spricht, in, the, in that, is it kind of, it's very simple, it's just very simple harmonies. And then you have this very improvisatory, uncertain passage in the middle, which kind of, it, it's kind of like when you grow older in some sense, things become more complicated. You know, you start off life, things are very, very fairly simplistic. As a child, you see things through a certain uh, unfiltered lens in some ways. And then as you grow older, you, had, you add more and more filters bit by bit, and things become less, more nuanced, more difficult, more complex. But in the end, you know, the beauty of it is in the end, you know, you come to the end of your life and you may not necessarily have discovered all the answers, but you'll have some, you can, you can potentially have some solace in that, you know, you'll, you'll return to the, the dust that you came from, if that makes sense. At least one solace you can have in life is that you'll, you'll be just as you were before you were born in some sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, well, that's, you know, but there's, you know, there, there's some, you know, there's a certain element. Yeah. Yeah. No, not necessarily. But you know, you know, age itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. You know, it just depends on what you do with it and how you view it. So, mm. I think it's quite interesting. So, and I think there's a certain measure of triumph in that. Like, yeah. you, you can kind of you can kind of imbue the human spirit with, and I, I'm quite quite fond of that German romantic idea. It's kind of you know, imbuing the human spirit with a certain noble value. Yeah, I think that's a lovely way to describe Schumann. There's so much triumph, but a lot of it is kind of that nostalgia for a time that was less complicated and less hurtful. Yeah. And I think you get a lot of that in Kinderscene. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lovely triumph to the, yeah, the karma things in life and what actually matters. Um, exactly, yeah. yeah. Priorities shift as you get older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what strikes me so much about Schumann is that um, he had such a tortured life. I mean, so much of it. Um, yet he wrote what I'd say is the most uplifting music of his time. So I, I find that, yeah, that juxtaposition just really kind of, it's both heartwarming and also incredibly sad. Um, well, yeah. he, was a, he was a man who kind of lived in dreams. So uh, Yeah, that's sense. a lovely way yeah. of putting it. Um, and I think that's what you get in the King's scene, it's longing for another, kind of another existence, which is more simple. Um, yeah. It's like realising that the, the triumph is not always in doing great, profound things, but sometimes in just kind of existence itself and yeah yeah oh that's a very heartwarming way to look at it yeah yeah Yeah, i've got a couple of i've got a couple of things actually do you want me to go first then sure sure all right um so my first i'm just gonna play you this without uh explaining it but my first one is um some some music that we uh don't talk about in england very much or if we do it sort of tends to be um well it just tends to be not in a serious way but i think it is actually good music that um mo at the right moment is worth uh listening to and i think it expresses 
triumph very well, so I'll play you it. There you go. I think it is better music than people give it credit for. Is that a jump for Sousa by any chance? It is, yeah, it's Sousa. Well, it yeah. It's actually a huge choice then. Um, but, you know, uh, that's kind of just, yeah, that just kind of speaks so much joy and triumph. I mean, obviously it's kind of military music, but... Um... I always enjoyed Stars and Stripes Forever, actually. Is it, is that, is it Stars and Stripes Forever? Yeah. Yeah. I was like the I I always thought you know you have to be a real pickle of virtuoso to be able to play this part. In the middle there's section. a bit in the middle. But it's such kind of good fun, isn't it? And um, just overwhelmingly joyous. But uh, it's kind of like the American version of Johann Strauss, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, definitely. But um, but I've got a more serious choice for you. <laughs> So, that wasn't the serious choice? That wasn't the serious choice, no. <laughs> um, funnily enough. So this one's um, this one's the one I'm going to count. So here you go. In 1885, as a newly elected member of the Philharmonic Society of London, which is um, the same institution that commissioned Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which of course brought him great acclaim and prestige, uh, Antonin Dvorak received his first ever symphonic commission for what would turn out to be one of his greatest symphonies, the Seventh Symphony. I Great. I am looking very pleased. <laughs> yeah, one of my favourites. So a big influence uh, came from his mentor, of course, Brahms, who had just completed the Third Symphony at the time. However, the story goes that uh, Dvorak's moment of inspiration for this piece came whilst wandering around Prague train station and as he saw troops arriving into the city for a special concert to support the Czech uh, efforts and struggles for an independent uh, homeland from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he said, The first subject of my symphony flashed into my mind on the arrival of the festive train bringing our countrymen from Pest, which is of course the eastern part of Budapest in Hungary. His intense patriotism and hope for the success of his nation, combined with the struggles of sadness after the uh, personal struggles after the death of his mother and eldest child, or the sad years, as he refers to them uh, in the footnotes of the second movement of this symphony, um, result in a very fraught and agitated tone that culminates in the uh, at the end of the finale. But the heroic surge of will at the end of the movement is characterised by his statement that what is in my mind is love, God, and my fatherland. And uh, Czechoslovakia finally became an independent nation in 1918, which Dvorak didn't get to see. 
but the abandonment of Slavic folk music, which he, which really characterised his style before this, and the unsettled nature of this piece particularly, it shows how serious the tenor of this uh, topic uh, was to him and this particular composition, and how he still had a vast amount of hope that one day uh, his nation would uh, achieve a cause that he believed in so strongly. So uh, for me, I'll, I'll play, it's a slightly longer extract just of the end of the... Um, last movement, but yeah. Is it the John Elliott Gardner one? It is the Gardner recording. You'll yeah, see it's... why I like this recording in a second. <laughs> oh, I know exactly why you like it. <laughs> I really think it is the best, the best one, but um... it is good. Piece. It's such a it's such a great ending, and the um yeah my my thing about the Gardner recording is the that horn line. I just haven't found anyone else that does that better. The, the massive swoop up and up. Oh, Dan's gonna say he knows a better one, but uh, listen to the Even Fisher recording because the extra thing that he does is with a, a Budapest uh, Festival Orchestra. Um, those final chords he kind of forthando them, so hits them and away and hits right. crescendo, hits crescendo, hits crescendo, and oh, it's thrilling. But the but horn line is, is ad lib, so um, yeah, that's hardly any, anyone does it. 
lot of people think it's the greatest missed op- opportunity in orchestration because Dvorak didn't actually write it. It's just the flute part. <laughs> and some conductor, you know, nobody really knows who did it first, thought it'd be a good idea to stick all the horns on the flute part at the end because it's such a good line. <laughs> and yeah. it looks so well that you can't not do it anymore. So everybody everybody does it now. But um, but yeah, especially the other thing about that recording is the just the kind of punchiness of the strings mm. and the articulation. Like, there's so many other recordings out there that just seem kind of boring in comparison. But I'll, I'll check out the Ivan Fisher one. But yeah, you know who does need to record it then, if you want punchiness. <laughs> Theodore Grenfis. Yeah, no, that would be epic. That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I Ben, that's one. Of, I was actually thinking of talking about that. That's one of my favourites. To be honest, I think it is Forjak's greatest symphony. I, wasn't I think it. Say that, but I didn't know if you disagree, so I was like tentative. About it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's funny because. Um, I see the seventh as his kind of tragic symphony, right? Because it is all so dark, mm. so driven, but in quite a scary, aggressive, impulsive yeah, yeah, yeah. way. Yeah. And then suddenly in those last few bars, you just get utter triumph. It's so, epic. Yeah, it sort of sounds like it's almost running off out of control, running off the rails. You yeah. Know? And he just kind of brings it back to something. That's those final bars. Yeah, but, um, okay. This was tricky. As in the case of so many of the great masterpieces of the Romantic era, and therefore hundreds of my own favourite works, reaching some, port of, uh, some sort of triumph at the conclusion of a work was often the aim, demonstrating victory over any emotional negativity the musical narrative had struggled with up until that point. I was so tempted to talk about the end of Sibelius II or Elgar I, the end of Rachmaninoff's second or third piano concertos, this close to Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, or just about the end to any Bruckner symphony as well, However, one work came to mind as particularly interesting, as undoubtedly the most triumphant point of the work comes at exactly halfway through rather than the end. So I will be talking about one of the most sonically vivid spine-tingling works of the repertoire, and that is Strauss's Alpine Symphony. So on the surface, it is a portrait of an unidentified protagonist's humongous journey to conquer a mountain, overcoming many stormy obstacles and mesmerizing images along the way. However, if we dive a little deeper into the work, we'll see that there's a lot more meaning behind all of that. Before landing the title of an Alpine symphony, Strauss had originally started work on it as the tragedy of an artist, planning to write it in the memory of a Swiss painter named Karl Stauffer Bern, who had committed suicide after a scandalous affair with Lydia Velti uh, Escher, one of the richest women in 19th century Switzerland. Strauss later proposed calling the work The Antichrist, the same title as a book by his go-to philosopher Nietzsche, believing that new creative energy could only be achieved by liberating oneself from Christianity. Uh, a quote from Strauss himself is that the symphony, the Alpine symphony, represented moral purification through one's own strength, liberation through work, worship of eternal, magnificent nature. Although neither title stuck, knowing this makes the work all the more impacting, as without doubt the depiction of an Alpine journey is simply a metaphor for the striving of humankind, with all of its turbulence and victory. And this really comes to the fore in this movement that I will play for you on the summit. The protagonist has reached the top of the mountain and is rewarded by nature with the most glorious outlook on the world and overwhelming sense of achievement and pride. 
the music is not triumphant in a way that is extrovertly celebratory, but instead representing a far more deeply felt inward experience of achievement and how endurance of suffering and effort has reaped the most glorious rewards. It is noble, bold, yet still in, so in touch with an honest vulnerability that led up to this glorious point. So the deeper you look into this seemingly extroverted, extravagant orchestral showstopper, really it's less about visual description, but way more about inner experience and a celebration of the highs and lows of what it is to be human. Of course, the protagonist has to come down from the mountain. The terrifying storm that comes and misty bleakness of the close of the symphony perhaps acting as a warning to act carefully with your actions, ambitions and achievements. But for now, just 25 minutes through the symphony, enjoy being human at its most triumphant because this is especially the moment where the sunrise theme from the opening of the symphony returns in its full glory it really does feel like the summit of the whole symphony and i don't know how anyone couldn't have shivers running down their entire body for it
that's pretty triumphant to me. <laughs> it's yeah, such, a big fan of that work. Yeah. Such vast kind of spacious music, isn't it? I mean, it, it so noble. It so actually noble. sounds like you're in the mountains, though. You know, mm. looking over a vast kind of valley or something. I must think with Strauss, the way he writes for orchestra it sounds so natural. Mm. It really like does. It, it, it's like an extension of his uh, sort of pen in a way. It's like, a bit like Chopin with the piano. It's yeah, kind of like yeah. Strauss for the, the orchestra. It just it sounds just very... falls into place perfectly. Yeah, it just sounds like his voice somehow. Mm. Um, I actually really like a recording, I don't know whether you know it, of uh, Rudolf Kemper conducting Yeah, this. I have that box set actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somewhere. Oh, here we go. Yeah, I, I have very. That's yeah, it's very. very that, that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was very fond of that because it's the first one I listened to. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's made a very big impression in my mind. Yeah. I've said that was so, a fantastic symbol crash at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That guy, uh, Raphael Heiger, is one of the best percussionists in the world. I don't yeah. know if you saw as well, um, but if you look at. This guy in the background. Is he covering his ears because it's so loud? No, he's he's like opening them so he gets to hear it more. Uh, it's like he's not loud enough for him. Himself. <laughs> pre yeah. Preparing himself. Yeah. Yeah. It's not often people want to hear more of a cymbal crash. But it shows it must be done well. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> moments, though. I can tell you there are only uh, one. There are only five cymbal crashes in the whole of that piece, and each one no of way. them is just absolutely magnificent. Yeah, just He's got such really a nice round moment sound of triumph and arrival, and yeah. Right, so I suppose now you have to uh, pick which one you think fits the bill better. <laughs> well, I love the Alpine Symphony, so it's kind of a bit, of a, yeah. I have to say, I'm probably in favour of Dan. Yeah, Daniel. yay! That's fair enough. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So, I mean, you, you did. You made some good selections. Just the Alpine Symphony is just yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite unique. It's a very Alpine Symphony. It's a unique. It's a very unique work to me. I don't know. So, mm. yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's kind of one of those works that is so magnificent it stays with you your whole life. Really. Yeah, it's kind of like a monument. Yeah, it's a great monument. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the word for it. Monument. Yeah, I like that. Right, so All right. we've uh, got a few uh, little questions, just quick-fire questions for you. They're very casual, yeah. just... Okey-dokey. I, yeah. I think I'm first, aren't I? I think you so, are, yeah. So, Luke, what uh, is, for you, is your most rewarding concert experience? So, my most rewarding concert experience, do you mean past or hypothetical? Probably past, I think, yeah. Okay, so my past could concert be, experience. Could be well, honest, you played in or seen or... Okay, so yeah, so basically, I mean, I've had, I've been able to watch some great concerts, although not as many as I'd like to be honest. Um, uh, I, growing up, I I did have uh, the privilege to watch Maurizio Pellini in oh. London twice nice. when I was a child. Uh, thankfully, my dad, um, who's a big piano, he's, he's just a big classical music fan, so uh didn't have a lot of money, so we took the bus like, at five o'clock in the morning down to London. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. Well, he he loved watching concerts himself. I mean, my dad's seen some really great musicians over the years. He he saw Sviatoslav Richter. Huh. Uh, he saw Emil Gilles. Wow. Uh, you know, he saw some really great musicians at his time because I mean, he wanted something my dad always wanted to do. He wanted to be a musician, but he his his dad wasn't very supportive of it at the time because it just wasn't really the done thing in that area. It's kind of he had to go to the steelworks. You know, he got a safe job there, so. 
that's what you got to do. So, but he was always very interested in music, and that's what kind of like rubbed off on me. Uh, I also I also had the privilege of watching Oscar Peterson, the great jazz pianist, in his last concert in the United Kingdom. Wow, that was that was in Liverpool, and I that was just pure coincidence that I found out about that because I was helping my brother, who was at the time had a paper route for the local paper and my you know being a sort of eager younger brother and i'd sort of had to pack all these newspapers with leaflets inside and one of the leaflets was uh, oscar peterson playing at the liverpool city of culture festival because they were they were they were named capital of culture in 2008 but they had like a sort of festivals leading up to that two years prior or three years prior even actually um and we went to so the, the tickets were quite cheap but it was even better because it was a football match on <laughs> at the time of England versus Portugal which I think Portugal beat England but because of that it turned out a lot of the audience didn't even turn up so it meant that we got some really great seats to huh. sit very close to the stage because initially we were right at the very back uh, but that was very enjoyable so those are my best like viewing concert experiences in terms of my own performing experience while I've played in the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester twice which is a great hall and uh, it's a very sort of modern contemporary space. And I, I, I quite like those kind of places. For me, they're a little bit on the sterile end. I mean, they're very beautiful for acoustics and, you know, for a pure a sort of pure concert experience in one sense, for a pure listening experience. Um, but the two experiences that I really kind of call to mind as my favorites, I would have to say. So just for sheer beauty and the kind of overwhelming nature of the experience. I played the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto number one in the Pala de la Musica Catalana, which is in Barcelona. <laughs> and if you ever get the chance to see this concert hall, it's absolutely magnificent. Everything about it is just beautiful. Right? You can't fail to be in, in there and just feel, I don't know, taken in by all the colors. And it was a, it was a huge audience and it was um, very, just a really amazing experience to, to have the opportunity to play in that space and like what i always find really amazing actually is that the the there's this beautiful stained glass at the top of the palau uh and depending on the time of day so how bright it is because of where the sun is it, the, the the glass sort of changes color so during the daytime you have this really rich orange blues uh, reds so it's gorgeous and then towards the end of the day it starts to fit going to a sort of faded pinks and purples and turquoise colors it's just yeah it really is an inspiring place to, to sit and just look at things just you know, to take in this kind of beautiful imagery and then the second greatest so for me the personal experience is uh nowhere particularly famous but actually a small church in a, a village called valsoda which is uh on the italian side of lugano uh which is where there's very beautiful lakes uh, Menaggio, Bellagio, and um, that that was a kind of trip that was organised by a friend of mine who's a tour operator, and he wanted to run like a sort of private concert holiday kind of package for some people, and he asked me to come and do some concerts for him. So I got to kind of experience a mini holiday at the same time, but like just that kind of tranquility of being in a very beautiful church, uh, you know, a nice choir, grand piano, you know, it's not it's, you know great Steinway D or anything, but it was just a very nice very well kept piano beautiful church and then just to be surrounded by lakes uh amazing forests and mountains and just it's kind of, it's kind of like perfection for me and i i just i think that's probably the most relaxed i've ever felt before a concert in my yeah. entire life 
which is something else because you know usually i don't get nervous very easily generally speaking i usually take pressure very well but you know there's always that sense of occasion that sense of like you know i've got to really you know you've got to really prepare yourself very intensely but i don't know when i played in that particular space it was just it was, to me it felt as easy as breathing somehow i just felt so relaxed and so at home with the place just playing at the piano just it just felt like the most natural experience imaginable so i'll always hold that in my mind so yeah if you ever want to start a music festival start in somewhere very nice <laughs> uh, what is the most challenging uh, piano part you've ever played i mean i've played brahms violin sonatas and i've played brahms cello sonatas um they're pretty they're pretty difficult i'm not gonna lie they are very tricky parts i would say actually i wouldn't say it's the most difficult but one of the the deceptively difficult works of the Chopin cello sonata, which I played with a good friend of mine a few years ago. Uh, and what was deceptively difficult about that is that obviously Chopin usually writes so well and so beautifully, but I almost feel somehow that he was kind of cut off by this completely strange environment. And somehow the piano writing just doesn't fit under the hand in the way you expect with Chopin. And I found that quite disorientating to play because you got the kind of some of the textures that you are familiar, because I've played a lot of Chopin's piano music. And uh, you, you, you kind of see some of the textures, but somehow the piano writing just isn't as fluid and efficient as uh, you would expect. Uh, played also Shostakovich piano quintet. That's quite tough. That require, That's quite demanding. Uh, and I've looked at the Ravel piano trio, which is just a nightmare. To <laughs> that's, ex that's extremely difficult to get together. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of multifaceted. It's not just, I, can't, I couldn't really give you a single answer, to be honest. Uh, if they were making a film about uh, your life, you know, Luke Jones the movie. What actor uh, would you like to play you? Oh goodness! You know, I'm kind of. I do watch a lot of films, but I don't really. It's difficult to I say never who. Pay I pay attention to any of the actors, to be honest. And Dan's better at that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, actors seem to be kind of incidental to the. You know, they they play their role, but I don't really see them as a central feature. They, I mean, maybe some films are kind of like that, but usually, yeah. you know, the film. The film is a totality of features, not simply just the actors, although obviously they're an integral part of it. I don't know. I'll, I'll go for somebody sort of ridiculous and macho. I don't know, like Richard Burton or Gregory Peck or something. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do. Somebody, yeah. Is there a particular musician that you particularly enjoy collaborating with um, and you would like to give a shout out to on this podcast? Uh, yeah, sure, actually. Um, well, there was a good friend of mine, Finley Hare, who's a cellist from Jersey, who also went to the RNCM. And we played a few concerts together. And I've got to say, those times rehearsing were some of the most productive and fruitful sessions of my kind of musical experience. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, you've, you probably don't know him, but he's a, he's a very funny guy. And he's got, he's, he, he likes playing devil's advocate. So sometimes he likes to wind you up, but it's good because sometimes, you know, like you know, you sometimes get these kind of like pointed observations that you suddenly go, that was very good. Keep doing that. You know, keep keep making those observations because we're getting somewhere with it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I just enjoy it. We had a very good working relationship, I felt. And uh, mm. I kind of, I do, I do quite miss it, to be honest, because chamber music is one of those things that I've, I've somewhat struggled with a little bit. Uh, I, I'm happy to admit this due to my own personality to a degree. I mean, I, I tend to be quite demanding in some ways when it comes to music i'm kind of a bit uncompromising and obviously it's because i'm i mean it's not to the point where i don't think people have good ideas of course i do but 
I do have a certain uncompromising nature sometimes. And I, you know, one of the experiences I've had is sometimes playing with really excellent players. And, you know, you do one rehearsal or something and they go, it's fine. It's great sort of thing. And I just think, well, no, it isn't. Get and do the rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. No, it isn't. Let's get back to the drawing board. We need to get, we need to do this and do it better. <laughs> Don't yeah, rest yeah. on your, we all know we're, you know, we all know you're competent. We know we, know we can do it, but we've got to do more. We've got to do it more and more and more. Uh, like we all we used to watch, you know, cartoons and stuff when we were younger. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. What What's the most relatable cartoon character for you? Most relatable. Oh yeah. my goodness! I think uh, I think what I like. I mean, particularly anime, for example, if, if you're familiar with anime at all, mm. I think there's a certain aspect of it which is that it's like a medium that can express with the, in the in the right hands. It can actually express more real emotions than sometimes you can express on a screen, if that makes sense, because you're not limited by kind of environmental uh, limitations, if that makes sense. You can create a world that is emotionally consistent without any sort of break break because of the environment or something like that it's difficult yeah. to explain what i mean you can, you can kind of like maximize the character's uh uh dimensions if that's yeah. for lack of a better word or you're not limited to the to like the there being a separation between a, a character and yeah playing them kind of. yeah exactly yeah because obviously to a degree with an actor you know they're really embodied by the actor you identify with that actor whereas you know in something like a cartoon or like an anime or whatever the the character is somewhat abstracted from it you're, you're just yeah. fulfilling you're just fulfilling the voice acting role aspect of it so i think there's there's, there's something very nice about that I mean, uh, I wouldn't say a character, but one anime I used to really enjoy is, uh, I still enjoy actually, is Cowboy Bebop, which if you don't know, is uh, I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. It's very artistically done, and the music's amazing on it. Um, the, the music was composed by this like, extraordinary woman called Yoko Kano. Uh, she's like, sort of like, she's, she runs a big band called The Seatbelts, and they do all the music for that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all originally composed music for that TV show, and it's amazing. Highly recommend it. Like, the soundtrack's really good. What is your signature dish? Uh, well, I really like cooking. Uh, I do kind of go into a slight Gordon Ramsay routine. <laughs> uh, you know, I, so I kind of take not, it. It's not just chamber music, then. <laughs> no, no, no. I take it very seriously. You know, I, I you know, I, I, I kind of expect very high standards of myself, and uh, yeah. I tend to find if I if I do something majorly wrong in the kitchen, I, I go mad. I go. Uh, my, my temper starts to rise with the increasing heat of the, the room <laughs> so <laughs> I can make a pretty decent spaghetti ragu I can make some pretty good uh, gyoza which is uh, Japanese dumplings mm. I, know how, I, know, I, know, I've, I know how to make them fresh uh, I think I, I can do pretty good katsu as well chicken katsu oh, which yeah. is uh, or pork or tonkatsu pork tonkatsu so, which is Japanese uh, cutlet uh, katsu is just uh, cutlet cutlet in japanese uh and it's like breaded it's a breaded meat yeah, yeah. And I, I also made the curry sauce from scratch for a couple of times which is quite fun yeah something yeah. like that actually oh actually i'll tell you what my is my signature is this i can make a great victoria sponge 
Hey, that's uh, good. Uh, yeah, yeah. That is, okay, okay. If I if if I can be proud of anything, I can say I can be proud of my Victoria sponge. I've I've actually made one for the, a guy who runs a very uh, very established bakery called Gerard's, which you probably don't know, but it's a it's a, an established bakery company in North Wales. And I I was at a friend of a friend. I was at my friend's house who knows the owner of this bakery, and I happened to make a Victoria sponge. And I had it approved by him, so Great. I know that it's. Gosh. I got it approved by a professional baker. So. <laughs> Describe yourself in one word. That's Simple. <laughs> yeah, going back to the cartoon cartoon thing again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, I, obviously, I could say something like eclectic because I do actually. I would say I probably do have quite eclectic tastes actually. Mm. Um, I, I I would say from a personality point of view, if I was to analyze myself, I'm quite open to experience and open to ideas. I'm quite. I think I'm quite receptive for the most part, but ultimately, I I like simplicity above everything else. Generally speaking, um, is there one musician, dead or alive, uh, you know, could be instrumentalist, composer, anyone you want, that people should be raving about more, but they aren't? So they should basically be better known. We want to share as much music as we can with our listeners. So, well, my instinctive answer is Bach. Because I think, I mean, obviously he's like, you know, one of the most important composers and everybody knows it, but people still don't give him enough credit, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, you know, the more I study Bach, I just kind of think this guy is just, to me, he's a genius of geniuses. So I know, Samuel Feinberg. There's a uh, good. Uh, yeah. Samuel Feinberg. I think that's a, he's a guy who should get a lot more recognition, actually. I think he was very, he was very influential in the uh, Russian piano school. Very good composer, mm-hmm. a very uh, superb pianist, musician. Uh, just, I think he actually did the first recording of the World Temper Clavier, but I don't know whether that's true or not. Definitely one of the earliest. Definitely yeah. one of the earliest on piano. Uh, the conditions of which under which he did it as well, pretty impressive. When he was teaching during the day, and he basically had access to the Moscow Conservatory Great Hall at night time. And that was just basically only, and he would have to kind of record straight through because in those days they didn't have the equipment to make multiple takes of things and, you know, spend, spend years editing it. He would literally just have to go in at nighttime and record it. Do it all, yeah. Yeah, it's just made, made of different stuff, you know. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, that's it. Thank you so much, Luke. It's been really nice meeting you. And Yeah, you too. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah, good fun, though. Uh, you're originally from Wrexham, is that right? I think, yeah. Yeah, Wrexham. So, uh, Welsh. So yep. um, that's the deflammatory bit. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, that's that's uh, fine. 